Welcome to the Preacher Podcast, where we believe that preaching should be biblical. And for it to be biblical, it must be Christ-centered. We talk to preachers about, well, preaching. Whether you have preached one sermon or 1,000, we're here to serve those who want to preach better. I'm your host, Alan Stanley. Welcome to another episode of the Preach It podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the law, as in the Old Testament law given to Israel, and specifically, of course, how to preach it. But there's some groundwork to cover, and to help us with that is someone who I've enjoyed listening to and reading immensely, uh, Carmen Imes. And in particular, I want to mention one of Carmen's books that I've been making my way through, Bearing God's Name. Why Sinai Still Matters. Uh, It's a breath of fresh air, it really is. It's not a slog through uh, academic tone. It's uh, it's extremely readable, highly recommend it. Um, And yeah, it's just a great read. So welcome, Carmen. It's good to have you you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Just take uh, a little bit to introduce yourself. Tell us um, who you are and what you do and anything else that you want to add. Sure. Um, Yeah, as you said, my name is Carmen Imes. I am professor of Old Testament at Biola University in Southern California. Uh, My husband and I have been missionaries uh, for over a decade. We lived in the Philippines for a few years, so I've been over on your side of the globe. And... um, and we've lived in Canada and all over the United States. So um, friends and connections all over the place. And as you mentioned, um, my book, Bearing God's Name, is what I wrote for the church at large to, to help people recapture and um, rediscover the Old Testament and its relevance for, for the life of faith. I'm currently working on a prequel to that book entitled Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. Uh, The first one came out of my doctoral dissertation, which I did at Wheaton College, on the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. So, I spent five years doing a deep dive of the Ten Commandments, um, and I came away, you know, when I started, I thought, oh, this will kind of label me as as an expert on Old Testament law, and that sounds really dry, and I'm not sure I want that. (laughs) And as a matter of fact, I came to love the Old Testament law, and I don't get tired of talking about it. So, I'm glad we're having this conversation today. Oh, well, I'm delighted as well. Um, yeah. Well, let's get straight into it. Um, I, you know, I kind of want to ask, I'm not going to, by the way, but I kind of want to ask just what is your advice? What would your advice be to preachers um, about Old Testament law? But, I mean, that's just huge to start off with. Mm. So, Take us to take us to a start to the place to start. Where do we start to understand uh, the law? Because um, many of us might want to go to somewhere like Paul, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, we tend uh, the the church today tends to spend a lot of time in Paul and not a lot of time in the Old Testament. And some of what Paul says about the law ends up. T- distorting our view of the Old Testament because I don't think we're understanding Paul well. So, I would say that the first thing I I would encourage pastors or preachers to do is to pay attention to where the law appears in Israel's story. Um, There's this 
this terrible caricature of the law that is deeply persistent, like it's said over and over again, uh, and it's so problematic. And that is, people think, and it's often preached, that the Old Testament law was the way that Israel got saved. Hmm. They, they, they obeyed the law to earn their salvation, but we have grace available to us in Jesus, so we don't have to think about the law. We're just saved by grace. And that caricature has so distorted what's even happening in the Old Testament. So, mm -hmm. I would say it's clear to me that in the book of Exodus, God rescues the people from Egypt. He saves them, if you will. He brings them to himself. He calls them his people before he gives them the law. It's not a prerequisite for his saving work. Um, it's in, instead, it's the outflow of the saving work. It's how they are to live now that they are the people of God. And so, if we could just make that one shift, so much of the law will come into clearer focus for us. Um, if we can just shift to realize they're saved first, then comes the law, and the law is not the means of salvation, but rather is the matter uh, or the means of mission. Mm -hmm. So, God is taking Israel to be his own people, and he's appointing them as his representatives among the nations, and the law is the way they're going to do that. It's it's a way of living out their vocation. It's, it's spelling out, here are the ways in every area of life, here's how you can reflect my character to the nations around so that they can see who I am. And I love what you've said there um, with regard to you know, sometimes we distort the law or the Old Testament by looking at Paul. I found it in in the latter half, I guess, of my life, I guess you could say, um, helpful and I, and a good principle, I guess, of reading the Bible to move forward and to understand what comes later in light of what has come earlier rather than the yes. other way around. So yes. let's do that because it's very tempting to run now to the New Testament and, and look at all of the obvious questions that now come up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But perhaps let's just um, move forward and then we'll get to some of the New Testament issues later. Just yep. a question um, on what you've just said. You mentioned um, Israel's mission and their um, reflecting God's character. Is this mm -hmm. kind of a thread going back to Genesis 1 where we're created to we were created in the image of God. Hmm. Yeah, this is that's a great question. It's a question I've been asked many times since my book came out. Um, there is a similarity, or I would say maybe an analogy between our human status as the image of God and our covenant status as the people who bear God's name. They're not exactly the same thing, though. Um, both roles are representative in nature. But, um, but the Bible is clear that every human being is the image of God. And in contrast to that, only the covenant people bear God's name. So, so when I talk about keeping the law, I'm speaking of the covenant community and what God is calling the covenant community to. And of course, they're doing so as a light to the nations. So, the mm -hmm. idea is that all humans could be invited into this covenant, but not all humans are part of it yet. So, mm -hmm. It's impossible for an unbeliever to take God's name in vain, I would argue, mm. because they don't, they don't bear God's name. They're not part of the, the covenant people, and so they can't, uh, therefore, misrepresent God. They're not his representatives in that sense. Mm. So, this is, this is about Israel's vocation, mm -hmm. uh, that to be a light to the nations, 
and we find that vocation in Exodus 19, right? We do. Yeah, probably my favorite passage in the Old Testament is Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. I wrote my master's thesis on, on that section and traced trace those ideas into the New Testament. So, I know we don't want to jump too quickly to Paul, but let's give Peter a moment in the spotlight, um, because in 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10, Peter uses the same titles that were given at Sinai in Exodus 19, and he applies them to the church. And the church he's writing to in 1 Peter is a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles scattered throughout Asia Minor, and he calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and God's treasured possession. And so, those titles are titles he gets from Exodus 19, which is why we're having this conversation about the relevance of the Old Testament law to the church, because according to Peter, we are part of this same covenant. These titles apply to us. Therefore, the mission applies to us. Therefore, we need to pay attention mm. to what the law says. So, yes, yeah, such an inspiring moment as they arrive at Sinai and God says, you are mine. I, I called you to myself. And that my favorite Hebrew word is segala, which is translated in Exodus 19 as treasured possession or something like that. Um, and it's not just it's not just a, a, a nice way of saying to somebody that you like them. It's actually a technical term used in treaty context to indicate a treaty partner that has special status as a representative of the king. And so, when, when Moses brings this message to the people that they are God's treasured possession, his segala, they all know they're signing up for a representative role. And that's um, just at the cusp of giving the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. So, th this is why I think the order is important. Their mm -hmm. identity as God's treasure is first established, and then he says, okay, now let me show you how to live like you're my treasure. This, um, this aspect of um, Israel's vocation, um, this was something I, I think in hindsight has radically changed my understanding of the of god's plan and the big mm. story the grand narrative of the mm, Bible. because mm -hmm. um, wouldn't it be fair to say that traditionally or typically we tend to see israel as kind of this type of humanity that um is basically fails to live up to god's standards mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and and therefore it, it's kind of you know we view them we view them in a in a, in in light of kind of salvation these people who you know are trying to get saved by the by mm -hmm. the law but they can't and then they become that becomes kind of a, a paradigm for us whereas mm -hmm. central to the existence of Israel is their mission their vocation yes. to the yes. rest of humanity yes. And that vocation is really clear in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when God calls Abraham or Abram, um, the, the whole premise of God choosing Abram is to rescue the human project, which has gone badly off the rails. Um, it, with, the, with the fall in Genesis 3 and the kind of downward spiral of human violence and uh, broken relationships with God, with each other, with creation, um, parent and child, brother to brother, like every aspect of relationships has 
has become fractured and God chooses Abram and his family and says, through you, all nations will be blessed. So God's in, God hasn't scrapped his plan for humanity. He mm-hmm. raises up Abram and his family in order to set things back on track. Mm-hmm. And the, the law that's given at Sinai is to the family of Abraham to enable them to do that, to fulfill that vocation. Mm. So how is it that they how is it that they are meant to how does how is the law meant to help them fulfill that? Yeah, I think because it it um, spells out for them a different way of living. Mm. We've we've seen so many problems in the first eleven chapters of Genesis. You know, brother killing brother, estrangement between parent and child, uh, a, a man gathering wives like trophies and bragging about violence. You know, there's there's all of these problems in those early chapters. And God says, that's not what I had in mind when I made this world and when I when I made humans as my image to mediate my presence and to maintain order on earth um, and to carry out creative work. That's not what I had in mind. So the law puts boundaries around human society so that it can begin to reflect what God intended from the beginning. Hmm. So the so the law was given ultimately so that Israel might be attractive. Yes. Uh, yes, in fact, we we think <laughs> we often today think of the Old Testament law as some kind of ball and chain like hmm. Oh, those poor Israelites. Have you seen all the laws they had to keep? It would have been such a drag to be at Sinai. But but actually, that's not how they respond to the law. They say repeatedly at Sinai, everything Yahweh has said we will do. They're, they're enthusiastic about it. Moses says in his closing address to them in Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter four, he says, when the nations get wind of this law, they're going to be jealous because <laughs> what other nation has a law so righteous and holy and good? Like, it's not as though the other nations are going to be saying, oh, phew, so glad I'm not an Israelite. They're, they're going to recognize, wow, this society is founded on principles that are actually good to live by, that mm. allow for flourishing. It's wise and it's going gonna, it's gonna to bear good fruit. And they're jealous that because in the ancient world, um, people all knew that the gods had certain things they wanted from humans, but it wasn't always clear what those things were. And so they had kind of a guess and check system of figuring out what the gods wanted. And if the crops aren't growing, we must have angered the gods. So what what do we need to do to make it right? So they would just start trying stuff, sacrificing animals, sacrificing children, um, performing sexual acts in the temple to try to arouse the God's interest. I mean, there's all sorts of things they try, but they're never sure. Hmm. And in contrast to that, Israel has a God who speaks and who says, here's what I expect. Here's how to please me. And he gives them these just very, very specific parameters in which they're they can live as a society and thrive you know i've heard on more than one occasion um when israel respond and i think it's a couple of times in the old testament mm-hmm. but anyway when they respond yes all these things we will do yes um, yeah it's in joshua as well um mm-hmm. i've heard it said what they should have done is said lord we can't do it huh have you heard that no this is that, that's it, that's, that's a of, very 
very yeah. New Testament Pauline sounding. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's it's bringing, it, it, yes, it is. Yeah. It, it, reveal, it reveals a lot about. Like a Romans 7. Like. Exactly. <laughs> and and I, let me just say, we'll get to the New Testament later, but let me just say that I think Paul and Moses would have gotten along just fine. <laughs> I think they're probably, you know, off there in heaven, you know, talking together about how wonderful God's law is. So, I think they agree, but I think we misread Paul and then we set them at odds with each other. And then we end up with two testaments that don't fit together very well. And we're not sure how to do that. So, part of what I'm passionate about doing is to help Christians see this is one story and it fits together well. And um, and the, the God of the New Testament that you know as loving and gracious is loving and gracious in the Old Testament too. It's not just in the New. Mm. Well, I mean, let's bring the New Testament back into the old, you know, and, and you know, go back to the old. But the New Testament does affirm it. And talking about Romans 7, Paul does say the mm. law is good. He does. So we've, got, we've got this law being given to Israel. It's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you mentioned in, the, in your book that it's a gift. Mm-hmm. And it's in the context of people who have been set free. Yes. Um. Can you talk a little bit of, I guess, specifically, perhaps what it would, what ideally, what it would have been, you know, maybe some examples of what it would have been like, what would this freedom look like? Mm-hmm. Because we do have this, we do have this impression that, you know, all those poor Israelites living yeah. under the law. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll use the first example that comes to mind is the Sabbath law. Um, which is when I when I teach the Ten Commandments, doesn't matter what age the students are, it seems like one of the first questions I get is about the Ten Commandments is, but the Sabbath is the one we don't have to keep anymore, right? And I want to say, why would you not want the Sabbath? Like, <laughs> this is the law that's telling you, you get to have a day off every week. And why wouldn't you want that? <laughs> like, it just seems it's baffling to me how we've turned it upside down and made it some sort of um, heavy, some sort of heavy-handed, like joy-killing mm-hmm. thing. When actually, what God is is saying to to the Israelites is, "You've been slaving away in Egypt for all these years, and you have a new master now. I'm your master, and I'm a different kind of master than Pharaoh." I, I want you to rest. I want you to flourish. And so, just like I rested when I made the world, you know, worked six days and then rested, I want that to be a pattern for you. I want you to do your work in six days and then take a day off. Sit back, enjoy what I've provided for you. Enjoy the work that you your hands, you yourselves have done by your own hands. And, and I think one of the most beautiful things about it is that it's not, here, head of household, take a rest. But it's actually enjoining these head of households and and requiring them to make sure that everyone in the household gets to rest. So, mm-hmm. even the servants, if they have servants, even the servants get to rest. Even the animals, the beasts of burden, get to rest. And so, that's an example of freedom. Yes, it's a law, but it's a law that provides space for human flourishing. And then there are so many other laws that are built on that pattern of a seven-day week. Um, and, and one thing that's interesting is that this, the, the seven-day pattern is not something that we find in the in the stars, the sun, moon, and stars at all. It doesn't have to do with the rotation of the earth or, or the, the planetary movement. It's 
purely arbitrary. It's by divine command, you're going to have this rhythm. And so, it sets Israel apart from the nations. And then these seven the, the seven-day cycle becomes a cycle of seven years in which the seventh year, the land gets a rest. And if you have indentured servants who've been working for you to pay off their debt, they get set free in the seventh year. And then every seven sevens, so every 49th or 50th year, there's a year of jubilee when land reverts back to its original ownership. And, and so, all of these cycles of sevens are built together, like they interlock to order society around the idea of freedom and rest, which is so beautiful. And sometimes people will point to the Old Testament and say, oh, the Old Testament condones slavery and it you know, has all these laws that are, that are bad, you can own people. And I want to I want to just point out that in Exodus, the the times when when there are laws regarding what you might call slavery, I prefer to call indentured servitude, um, because it's not it doesn't involve any human trafficking. It is not people owning other people. It's people um, freely offering themselves to work off a debt for someone else because they've run out of any other conceivable resource to do so. Um, but every time we get slavery laws. In the Pentateuch, it's in a section on Sabbath. So, it's not like, hey, here, go get people to, to work for you and buy and sell them. It's actually that the orientation of these laws is always towards limiting the power of the, the landowner and making sure that he's going to ensure the, um, the freedom of those working under him, that he, that that they he won't try to control them for longer than they than needed to pay their debt. Um, that it, it like regulates his movement with them. It regulates how he can treat them in a, in a host of ways. So th- these are some examples. I I see the closer look I take at the laws, the more I see that they are concerned with protecting the vulnerable, and. And in that way, they're expressing the character of, of a God who cares about all humans as people made in his image. Um, there's, there, it, it's not, this is not a, um, okay, now I'm the king of the mountain, I get to make the rules and I'm going to make them so that they benefit me at everyone else's expense. It's the opposite of that. Mm, yeah, that's, um, yeah, I enjoyed listening to that. Uh, I, I thought of First John uh, 5, God's commands are not burdensome. Mm. Uh, That's right. Do you, do you think that? Um, I, I mean, I love the way the I love the way the Ten Commandments start with, um, and these are God's God's first direct words to Israel: "I am the Lord your mm-hmm. God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery." In yep. other words, before He tells them to do anything or not to do yes. anything, He says, yes. "I'm the God who set you free." Yes. And it would be, you know, it'd just be really odd, wouldn't it? Uh, to mm-hmm. then go on and and load them up with laws that absolutely take away their freedom. Right. They've just been working for Pharaoh with no freedom. Mm. And it's the same the same Hebrew word is used in Exodus to describe what they're doing to Pharaoh, what they will do to Yahweh. They avad Pharaoh, they they serve him. And Moses' request um, of Pharaoh is, you know, God says, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness, so they may avad me. He's claiming to be their true master. Yeah. Pharaoh is not their true master. And so, they're, 
he's he's calling for a shift in a, a recognition of a shift in rulership and his the kind of rule that he has is so different and he tells the people um specifically not not to treat others as they've been treated in egypt that they this is going to be something different mm. Mm. um can we um where was it going to go with that um I was oh, just lost my train of thought for a moment. Mm. Um, I, I love this idea that the law is designed for Israel's flourishing, that mm -hmm. it's meant to be attractive. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea is that it's meant to be a light to the nations. Mm -hmm. um, where did they go wrong? Mm. Be because is here's what I wanted to suggest um see what you think of this that the law that God is offering them this is kind of getting into a bit of spiritual formation but the Lord is mm -hmm. offering them freedom mm -hmm. and and their I guess you could say their idolatrous hearts have their own have their own idea of freedom for example yep. just an extreme example you know um do not steal well that's not freedom, you know, then I can't mm -hmm. get what I want kind of thing. And right. I recognize the right. same thing in my life sometimes, you mm -hmm. know. Um, it's more it's, it's more liberating for me if, if I don't look at my phone too much. Mm -hmm. And yet temptation is so often to go to my phone, you mm -hmm. know, to look at messages, emails, whatever it is. And, yep. yet, and yet the Lord is always calling me to um, a, a different kind of freedom that my heart tends to want to resist would you is it mm -hmm. a similar thing that's going on with israel that they're offered yes. freedom and, and yet their idolatrous hearts resist it yeah i think what we see at sinai is the same pattern playing out that we saw in the garden of eden where god says you can eat from any tree they have all this freedom in the garden eat from all these trees they're all for you except one and which one do they go to and eat from Mm -hmm. That one tree, because of the promise that it might make them like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, they would—they're—they're they're trying a different pathway to the kind of knowledge or discernment, spiritual discernment that that they should naturally develop. So we develop spiritual discernment as we listen to the voice of God. He tells us what's good and what's bad, and He tells them, "You can have all these things, but not this thing." And they say, hmm, I want to develop discernment a different way, mm. through trial and error, <laughs> through, through listening to another voice other than the divine voice. So, they listen to the serpent. And, and that, of course, ruins everything because they've failed to see that what God gave them and the boundary he set was for their good. And so, we, we see the same thing at the mountain mm. uh, when, when Moses is up on the mountain getting the tabernacle instructions they're down below worshiping a golden calf, which is precisely what they were told not to do, but they think they know better than God. And so, I think that's always the temptation with us is to doubt that what God commanded will actually be good for us and mm -hmm. to think we know better than God. And if we want to grow in wisdom, then we have to be willing to say, I don't know, and God is the one who's teaching mm -hmm. me and I'm willing to learn. 
And if we don't have that teachable spirit, if we, we want to seize knowledge or wisdom in some other way, then ironically, we can't, we mm. can't get it. So, does the phrase, do this and you will live, which appears a few times in Deuteronomy, is, is how would you take that, do mm. this and you will live? Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it, it's pointing to a kind of life that is qualitatively different. Mm. It's, it's not just you will breathe in and out, your lungs will fill with air, your heart will beat. And it's not, uh, and it's not saying you will be saved. No, it's saying do this and you will experience the kind of abundant life that I've designed mm -hmm. you yeah. to experience. I think it maybe is an, an analog to what we see in the garden where God says, if you eat, the, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And then they do and they don't die right away. Mm -hmm. Because there's two kinds of death. There's physical death, and then there's the death of everything good in life. There's the death of, um, of an open, intimate relationship with God. There's, so, there's a, there's a kind of quality of life that they sacrifice by going against God's word. And Moses is saying, hey, you want that quality of life back? You do this. You, you live by these commands. Mm. And that's how to find abundant life. Mm, that's really good. As we move ahead to the prophets, it's interesting mm -hmm. that when we get to the prophets, they they don't they they never come back and pick up specific laws from Exodus, for example, oh, from Leviticus, for example. Um, their big picture is clearly in terms of I mean, and and Israel have disobeyed the law. Clearly, they've turned from the law, and yet the prophets aren't going back uh, to, you know, pick out you, these little laws. They're going back to the big picture of concerning their relationships with people, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And I think, so, the, to the extent that they do point out specific sins, they are violations of specific laws. Mm. But I think Jesus was right to summarize the entire law can be summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, that that loyalty to God in worshiping only him and tr treating his word as your treasure and your love for neighbor and your commitment to protecting the interests and rights and freedoms of others is actually what leads to flourishing. And so, if, if anyone is exploiting their neighbor, they're violated the whole law. Mm. In, in doing that. Mm. So if we could if we could plot a line or a trajectory from the law to Jesus, mm -hmm. are the prophets kind of halfway helping us to see the true intent of the law? I think so. I I, I think of the prophets as like covenant watchdogs. Mm. They they have the law clearly in mind and they're watching for covenant faithfulness and they're willing to call people out when they see unfaithfulness. And that takes lots of different forms. Um, you mentioned earlier that we think of Israel trying to earn their salvation with the laws, and then they don't, they, they kind of, they fail at that. We didn't finish that thought, but I think it's important to see that the, the Old Testament law was not just a, was not a failed experiment. It's not as though God tried to make a covenant, it didn't work out. So, in the New Testament, we're going to move on to plan B. Hmm. Um, it, the way I see it, God's promises to Abraham and his covenant with Israel at Sinai are enduring for all time. And any individual 
or any generation even can opt in or opt out of the blessings of that covenant by living faithfully. So, yes, there were lots and lots of Israelites who experienced the consequences of disobedience rather than blessings for obedience because that's built into the covenant. Not Again, this isn't salvation or not salvation. This is, are you going to experience flourishing or are you going to experience the opposite? Yeah. Um, and, and yet, we see many faithful Israelites as well, such as the prophets. And, you know, we get examples in the Psalms of faithful prayers of, of people who care about what God cares about. And so, then we get to the New Testament, and I think Jesus arises as this model of perfect fulfillment of the law, perfect covenant faithfulness. He does what so many were unable to do or unwilling to do. Uh, he he lives that out, and therefore, what he's doing is not something new. We haven't trashed Sinai and said, okay, that didn't work. Yeah. Um, he's actually carrying it through to its completion. So, if you're, um, let's make our way to Jesus. Then, if you're preaching yeah. from the, if you're preaching from the Old Testament, how do you, from the law, how do you make that move? Uh, how do you not make it? Can we start? Can we can we mm -hmm. do that and then go to how do you how do you make it? Yeah, I mean we we've already talked about some ways. I hope you don't make that connection, which would be to say, the God of the Old Testament is angry and full of wrath, and he has impossible demands, and the law is only to show us what horrible people we are. You know, full stop. Now let's talk about the God of love in the New Testament and Jesus and grace and like that. That is unhelpful. Um, that's not going to help people see the ways that the Old Testament should inform the Christian life. Instead, I would say we've got one covenant here, um, promises made to Abraham to, to bring all nations into the orbit of God's love uh, and, and into proper relationship with him. He uses Israel as a light to the nations to bring blessings, and because of their um, persistent failures. He takes one Israelite. We we sometimes forget Jesus is an Israelite. <laughs> He's a Jew, and he he comes as that king in the line of David, that seed of Abraham, that seed of the woman who crushes the serpent. Like he he draws together all the different threads of the Old Testament story, and he fulfills the law perfectly. So he models for us. Here's what God meant for us to live like. But then he also, through his death and resurrection, he takes on himself the punishment we deserve. He, he thereby offers forgiveness for our failures, and he opens the way for us to be grafted into this covenant and to experience its blessings, even though we ourselves have not obeyed perfectly. We, we, we get to come in um, on the basis of his forgiveness and on the basis of his perfect obedience. So, all sorts of ways that we can make the connection with Jesus. I think I think I want to also though give pastors the freedom to not have to jump to Jesus in a sermon on the Old Testament law. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we think, oh, law is an Old Testament thing, grace New Testament thing. And we forget that like all of Paul's letters could be neatly divided in half, where the first half is exposition here's what's true about you. And the second half is exhortation. Now, here's how I want you to live. And Paul is very specific about how our status as followers of Jesus should impact every area of our life. 
the way we do business, the way we relate to others, who we have sex with, how we raise our children, like how we talk about other people. All of these things are, are supposed to out, flow out of our identity as followers of Jesus. That's the same thing that's going on at Sinai. Mm-hmm. Here's your identity, your God's treasured possession. Now, here's how to live like it. So, what, what I think is that sometimes we feel too much pressure to like go to the cross or go to Jesus and talk about, okay, you can't keep the law, so mm-hmm. Jesus did it for you, so now we're, you know, done deal. And I want to say, use the law as a launching pad to talk about ways that we can faithfully keep the covenant we've made with God, that we can demonstrate loyal um, allegiance to Him in every area of our life. Just as the law touched every area, so our lives should, in, if you take a snapshot of any part of my life, you should be able to see a reflection of the character of God, the way I t- conduct myself on social media, the way I drive, what I buy, my forms of entertainment, mm-hmm. um, the, the way I parent, like all of those things, how I do my taxes, all of those things should actually be in alignment with my claim to follow Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And so, this is where I think the Old Testament law is such a rich resource for us because it gives us examples of how how serious covenant faithfulness looks in in different areas of life. Now, I don't have an ox or a donkey and neither does my neighbor. So, I'm not going to covet my neighbor's ox, right? I don't have to worry about that. But my neighbor might have a really sweet boat or an ATV or a, um, you know, Mm-hmm. amazing new haircut or whatever, like, like the coveting is not just limited to what it says in the 10 commandments. That should be like a sort of a paradigm for us that we can use to then think about in what ways am I coveting, coveting what my neighbor has and how to, to go back to the 10 commandments. Uh, my, my doctoral mentor, Dan Block talks about them as the bill of rights of the Old Testament, but it's not the bill of my rights. It's mm. the bill of other people's rights. Mm, mm, yep. It's they're designed to protect the rights and interests and freedoms of our of our neighbors. So, in what ways am I am am I infringing upon those rights, either through my words or through my actions or through even my thoughts? Because coveting is not something you can see externally, right? It's just my thoughts. So, I think there's all sorts of material here for discipleship as we think about um, life today, even digitally. Like, there's nothing digital, right, in the Old Testament, but but we can think about how are we infringing upon other people's rights online, um, and how can we instead restrain our own power for the sake of, of, of the other. Which explains why Jesus, you know, the, the golden rule, he said, um, treat others in the way that you, same way that you would want to be treated. Yes. It sums up exactly. the law and the prophets. Exactly. And also love your neighbor as yep. yourself, of course. Yep. Um, why then, I'm thinking of two things here because I'm thinking mm-hmm. of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the law will be written upon our hearts. Yes. Uh, what does that mean? 
So I think what's important to know is in Hebrew thought, the heart is not just the place where you feel things. It's also the place where you decide things and where you think things. And so to say that his law is written on our hearts is to say that it's central to our will and to our thinking about, I mean, we could go back again to the garden to thinking about what's good and what's evil, that it so shapes, it should show, so shape us that the things that flow out of our decision-making and our thinking and our feeling all, re, all are in alignment with the law. I think Jeremiah 31 is sometimes people point to this to say, see, the old covenant didn't work. Now God's going to do a new covenant. But if you carefully read that chapter mm-hmm. and you just discipline yourself to say, what is new in Jeremiah 31? It's very clear the law is no different. It's the people who are different. Mm -hmm. And that's why I see Sinai still matters because there's this continuity on into the New Testament then where the problem was not that the law didn't work because the law was bad. The problem is that it, it wasn't capable of changing our hearts. So, the work of Christ and the ministry of the spirit is to transform our hearts so that we can keep the law so 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 what and and acts to the coming of the spirit it's interesting yes. to me that straight after the coming of the spirit we have a description a summary description of the early church um you know praising god and so on and so forth but one of which is you know selling selling stuff they don't need to give to others who do need and there, I think it's a very practical outworking. Yeah. So, yeah. what is what is going on in the New Testament when Paul says we're not under the law, but we're under grace? And mm-hmm. um, you know, John one um, fifteen says that you know the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ, and so on and so forth. And this is this is what um, this arises from this um, this kind of thinking that. We've got mm-hmm. law than gospel, and we get this yep. negative attitude of the law. Yep. Yeah, um, this this is a great question, and I think uh, a helpful lens for us to use as we come into this, or helpful way of maybe framing it, is to recognize that when Paul uses certain words, he's, he's using them as shorthand for larger concepts. So, an example that we're not talking about, but I'll just use as an example, is the word sarks in Hebrew, which is Mm. flesh. And when Paul talks about the flesh being problematic, some people have interpreted that as um, our bodies are a problem, but our spirits. So, we just need to like deny our bodies and deny that we have desires and we just our goal is to be freed from these bodies so that our spirits can be with God. When in fact, he's using flesh as shorthand for um, the way that our physical desires, like it, for for a lifestyle governed by physical desires, not lived in in consideration of God's law. So, so flesh is one of those keywords in Paul, but I think law is another one where, where he does that, where when Paul says law, he's not thinking Sinai, full stop. He's thinking the condemnation. So, in this particular passage that you raised, um, Romans 6.14 says, mm-hmm. you've been set free from sin. Oh, sorry, this is, sorry, wrong one. For sin shall no longer be your master. 
because you are not under the law, but under grace. And if we read the context, we can see he still cares very much about, about honoring God. He's not saying, do whatever you want. Mm. We're not under the law, you know, free from the law. I think what he says when he, what he means when he says law here is the condemnation that's brought about by disobedience to the law. So, he says, sin shall no longer be your master, which says to me that he thinks it matters how we live, mm. because you are not under the condemnation brought about by disobedience to the law, but under grace. That is, the law showed, the, the, the law came with blessings and curses, right? The law came with um, benefits and mm. consequences, and you've been living under those consequences for a long time, not because the law is bad, but because you were bad. <laughs> mm. And so, you're not under that anymore. You're not going to be under those consequences because Christ has forgiven you and set you free, and the Spirit has transformed your heart so that you will now be able to do what God wants. You'll be able to live faithfully. So, so. When Paul says law, you just have to stop and say, what does he mean by law? Because sometimes he's, he's correcting misunderstandings of the law. He's not, he's not saying the law, as it was expressed in Exodus, is problematic, but the way you've been thinking about the law is problematic. And I think if we just um, put all these passages side by side, we can begin to see that. Because as you already pointed out, he calls the law spiritual, he calls it holy and righteous and good in chapter 7. Um, he says, I myself am a slave to God's law, which is a good thing in his sentence, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Like, he, he's, he's talking in positive ways about obedience. He doesn't mean obedience doesn't matter. Mm. And I think there's a good summary in Romans 8.3 where he says that, um, Jesus came and did what the law could not do, mm -hmm. um, namely because to it was transform us by the flesh. Yes. So the problem isn't with the law per se. I mean, the law exists as an expression of God's character, as you've said. But the problem mm -hmm. is with the flesh. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, there's lots of other passages we could talk about in Paul. Um, in your in your notes that you sent me, you mentioned Romans ten four, where it says Christ is the end of the law, and some mm. people are like, "Oh, good, it's over, no more law," yeah. but that's a misunderstanding of that word "end." Mm. Here, um, I think the NIV has has it good in the in the new NIV. It has the culmination. Christ is the culmination of the law. Oh. Mm. That is, he he brings it to its rightful. Uh, climax. He's doing what it was intended to do. That is, he's obeying it. <laughs> he's he's living faithfully with it. So, end in the sense of telos or purpose. Um, but he, I, I think, is what Paul means. Am I right in saying that he's not only obeying it in the sense that he's obeying it for us? He's obeying it to demonstrate what life under the law of mm -hmm. what you know, living out the law. What the kind of freedom, the kind of life that yes. that can look like. Is that right? Yes. So, it's not as though, well, Jesus kept the law, so we don't have to. Yes, yes. I mean, I could see somebody saying that, okay, it's over now because Jesus did it, so it only needed to be done once, and now we're, now we're good to go. No, that would be so pointless. He's mm -hmm. showing us how to live well, 
it would be silly for us to then go and say, okay, I don't need to live well because Jesus lived well. No, he he's inviting us into a way of life that is going to be life-giving for us too. Now, there are some laws, obviously, that um, that we don't live by today from the Old Testament. That's right. Um, so, what's going on there? Yeah, so this is a, a complex question, and depending on what zone you're in, what denomination you're in, you might have a different way of answering this. So, I have friends who are Messianic believers. Let's try the biblical way. <laughs> for example, <laughs> who um, who might keep the food laws and mm. still practice circumcision and keep the festivals, and but most Christians that I know do not. So, um, so I'll just give you my take, and maybe mm. my Messianic friends will be unhappy that I haven't gone far enough. Um, I would first say that all of the law continues to be relevant for us. All of it teaches us something about the character of God. So, it's not as though we can just go through the Old Testament with a black Sharpie marker and cross out the things that are obsolete mm. and keep the things that aren't. Um, the entire law, the whole law is holy, righteous, and good. And in the New Testament, um, th this is an insight I just picked up from Richard Averbeck. Who, he has a, a book coming out in a couple weeks on Old Testament law um, called The Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church hmm. with InterVarsity Press. And, and one thing that he kind of shifted my thinking on is that it doesn't work to separate the law into moral and ceremonial and civil and say, well, it's only the moral law that endures and the others are no longer relevant because he notes that the New Testament authors use laws from all three categories as they talk about uh, Christian obedience. So, after the resurrection, the apostles are applying different laws as examples of the character of God and they find them instructive for the Christian life. So, we can't just cross them out. The whole law is good. But we do need to understand that we're living in a we're, when as we're living after the cross and as we're living in a different cultural context, we might need to express them in different ways. So, for example, the food laws and the the law about circumcision, I would argue, was in place for the purpose of setting Israel apart from the nations, mm. and because for a while. The idea was Israel will be a city on the hill and other nations will see that and be drawn to it. And, and then to be part of this community, you have to convert not just to the worship of Yahweh, but to Judaism and its whole way of life. But that clearly shifts in the New Testament. Mm. Acts 15 is very clear. The, new, the church leaders meet together to decide, what do we do with Gentiles who want to follow Jesus? Do they have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? Mm. And the conclusion is no, they don't. They don't have to keep the food laws. They don't have to be circumcised. They can follow Jesus as Gentiles. Mm. So, for that reason, I don't keep the food laws, and I did not circumcise my son. Um. I, th I still think that the sign of circumcision is instructive mm. and that it has an analogy in baptism today. So, I, I think I, it's not that I think it doesn't matter. I just don't think I'm not going to apply it to my life or, or live it out practically in exactly the same ways. But we really have to do this for all the laws. We have to think about, you know, be, again, because my neighbor doesn't have an ox or a donkey, I have to think. Okay, what is this law actually asking? And and that 
requires us to think about what's the principle behind it. What part of God's character is this is this demonstrating, and how can I demonstrate that in my context? Mm-hmm. And then that requires some creative thinking. And so it would be right to say some of those laws become a dividing wall. I'm thinking of Ephesians two. Yes. Yep. And, and which is the and they can't operate like that now because you know that defeats the whole purpose of. Right. The dividing wall has been broken down. Paul Mm. is very clear about that in Ephesians 2. Um, There's no longer a division between Jews and Gentiles. So, whatever law was meant to divide ethnically is no longer in play. In fact, if we insist on keeping those laws, then we have some questions to ask, to answer about how are we being a light to the nations? How Mm. are we um, modeling the beloved community that draws in all people of all types to be part of it. If, you, if you're if you eating kosher, here's the thing, if you're eating kosher, then it prevents you from having table fi- fellowship with people who don't. And so, yeah. that, that be- then becomes a barrier to the church yeah. Um, yeah. gathering together. So, it, it's all a, um, you would... Uh, I've, you would agree, I think you'd agree with this, it's very much about vocation. Yes. You know, we see that in Genesis 1, we move through to Israel and then to, yes. the, to the church. It's very much about voc- and and salvation include is, you know, not just about getting our sins forgiven so that we can now be right with God and go to heaven kind of thing. It's so that we can now fulfill our God our God's calling for us. It begins in Genesis yes. 1, who's God given vocation for us. Yes, we're being invited into a way of life mm. and we're being invited into a community that is going to live out God's purposes in the world. This is not just fire insurance, you know, mm. escape hell, go to heaven when you die. That is not what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. And yet we've, the church has been, I don't know how it is where, where you live, but I've been in so many settings where people talk about asking Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven when you die, mm-hmm. as if that's the sum total of, of what the Bible teaches. And it's unclear to me where that even comes from. The Bible doesn't say Jesus comes into our heart. It says we surrender our lives to Jesus as king and acknowledge that he's the true king and offer him our complete and total allegiance. Um, that changes everything about life now. It's not just about some future destiny. Yes. Um, I, you know, I did, um, uh, I'm, I've, you know, I did my PhD over 20 years ago and I've been teaching in colleges and so forth since, but I've noticed as I have gone through this journey, um, which is an ever-changing one, I have become more and more contextual. And what mm. I mean by that is more and more, um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is is everything is more contextual and, and kind of the theological categories that, that were once big for me in early days have in a sense, dropped away or, you know, the, the, the starting point has been for me the context. And so I start talking mm-hmm. about things like vocation and, you know, again, what you just expressed, I've actually been using that in some of my sermons that Jesus mm. is not fire insurance. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's yeah. a big put down for Jesus when you think about it. I mean, you imagine if you said to, said to you know, your husband or I said to my wife, you know, if if you don't marry me, then that's curtains for you, kind of thing. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that that's not very flattering. That's called abuse. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. And so this is, this is a big uh, focus of my next book, which I'm just finishing up the one on, on being God's image is, is recapturing what the Bible truly teaches about our destiny and about what it means to be human, mm. because we, we still have such a platonic view of, of human personhood, like we're brains on a stick or we're disembodied souls is, you know, our, so our future is my soul's going to float up to heaven and I'll be floating mm. in the clouds. Mm. That is not what the Bible teaches. God created this world. He sent Jesus in the flesh. Jesus rose again in the flesh and stayed resurrected as he ascended. So now there's a human who's a member of the Trinity um, whose body did not go away. Mm. Um, if Jesus had, if Jesus' body had stayed in the grave and his spirit had been living in some way, then it would not have vindicated our embodiment and this planet. But I'm so convinced the scriptures teach a physical bodily resurrection for all believers and a new creation on this planet. God's mm. going to restore mm. all things mm. and will participate in his reign on terra firma. This is, is not about clouds and harps um, mm. somewhere. And I, I, I really hope to help the church recapture that because it changes a lot about how we, what we think our priorities ought to be now. Mm. No, that's great. Um, do you, I guess one final question. Um, I mean, I know there's lots of other things that we could talk about and we haven't discussed mm. the Sermon on the Mount much, but that's okay. Um, do any, I guess, thinking of preachers out there, any final tips to them you know in this in, in this whole thinking about the law um, because I suspect that there are probably some out there maybe many who are you know in this in this um, you know very traditional way of thinking about the law and mm -hmm. of course they will need to think that through themselves in terms of mm -hmm. you know whether they continue in that vein or not but what would you suggest to them mm. I would say be bold and don't be afraid to tackle Old Testament law. There are so many resources available now that weren't around 20, 30 years ago that can help you uh, unpack and understand some of the tricky laws. And my experience has been that when I sit sit with some of the most difficult sounding laws, the ones that seem the most objectionable, like the slavery laws we discussed earlier, when, when I sit with those and I wrestle with them and keep asking, how does this express Israel's mission? What's the principle behind it? Mm -hmm. How does it express the character of God? Yeah. If I wrestle with it until that becomes clear, I find them to be just glittering gemstones really instead good. of instead of you know this heavy like something we have to apologize for like yeah mm. the bible's kind of archaic it's kind of bad no if we take into consideration the cultural context the literary design of like where is this in the law and where is the law in scripture and then think about the whole theological trajectory of scripture i find again and again these are inspiring and, and the people in your congregation are hearing negative things about the Bible. For sure they are. And if you avoid the difficult texts, other people 
will talk about those texts and disciple your congregation, whether that's on TikTok or on YouTube. There are other people out there talking about the Bible in very disparaging ways, and you have an opportunity to to show them something beautiful, to show them the character of God, and to show them their vocation as part of the people of God, mm-hmm. um, the mission that He's given us. And I, I would just say, don't be afraid. Um, I, I have spent the past 10 years looking at Old Testament law, and I haven't found anything yet that makes me want to walk away mm-hmm. from the faith. And so, look for resources. There's great work being done. Um, I'll just throw out a few names of people who are doing work in this area for those who want to learn more. Sandra Richter Mm. has published a number of things and does a lot of talks um, on YouTube, uh, like talks at conferences that have been put on YouTube on Old Testament law, especially Deuteronomy. Mirto Theocharis is another one who's working on laws in Deuteronomy, both showing how these laws are good for women how they're good for the marginalized, how they're good for the vulnerable, how they restrain power. These This preaches really well in our day. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to be embarrassed by the Old Testament. Um, and then there's a couple of books that that could be a good resource. I already mentioned Richard Averbeck's Old Testament Law for the Life of the Church, which comes out in early September 2022. Um, there's also William Morrow, An Introduction to Biblical Law and Roy Gain, Old Testament Law for Christians. So, if you're like really going to want to go deep and and get help with particular laws, those could be a resource or good commentaries. There's some great new commentaries out or newish. Dan Block's commentary on Deuteronomy would would give a very like, we have the same approach to Old Testament law. He would would see it as a gift Mm -hmm. uh, that's meant to tutor us. He taught through the book of Deuteronomy in his Sunday school class for over seven years. It took them that long to get through the whole book because there was just so much mm. life-giving wisdom there. They didn't want to rush past it. So, um, and I, th- I think some of those lectures are even on available online somewhere. So, so look around uh, Dan Block, Sandy Richter, uh, Roy Gain. Yeah. All of these people have a lot to offer. I have a talk that I gave on the slavery laws that's on my YouTube channel. Um, I've also given a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount and the idea of the Old Testament law uh, mm. on Matthew 5. So, if if that's something that people want to hear more about on mm. my YouTube channel, there's a playlist of sermons and it's in there. Okay. Thank you. That is yeah. so helpful. Um, I love what you said about spending time in, in any Old Testament law that you can't get your head around and just sit there until you mm-hmm. get its purpose you know, for Israel and their role and their vocation. It's so easy to generalize. It is. Uh, this has been wonderful. Thank you. I really appreciate it so much. Mm-hmm. And I um, uh, just appreciate your time. It's been v- very enjoyable and informative. Thanks. Yeah, Carmen. thanks. Thanks for your great questions. And thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Preacher Podcast. If you've got a question or topic you'd like answered on a podcast, then please email alan at preachit.nz. If you'd like to know more about Preachit and the training we offer, go to www.preachit.nz or check out our Facebook page. This podcast was produced and edited by Ruffian Beats with music by Samuel James. Catch you next time on the Preacher Podcast where we want to serve those who want to preach better.